0: We are in the letter of James. It was Martin Luther who said this. In fine, St. John's Gospel and his first epistle, St. Paul's epistles, especially those to the Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle, these are the books which show thee Christ and teach thee everything that is needful and blessed for thee to know. Even though thou never see or hear any other book or doctrine. Therefore, is St. James' epistle a right strawy epistle in comparison with them, for it has no gospel character to it. I thought that'd be a good way to start the class on James. <laughs> a right strawy epistle. No gospel character. He wasn't denying the inspiration of the book. But much of his antipathy towards the book of James came from how his opponents misused the book of James, and how much time he had to spend defending the gospel from the Roman Catholic Church's perversion of James chapter 2. They looked at James chapter 2, verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And they said, well, that must mean in order to be justified, you have to go out and do a whole bunch of really good works and then you can be justified. Unlike Romans, James is not a book about doctrine. He doesn't have long doctrinal discourses where he teaches theology. He focuses on the practical application of Christian doctrine to the life of a believer. He focuses on a lot of the practical side of Christian living. Edmund Hebert, one of my favorite guys, The epistle sternly insists upon Christian practice, consistent with Christian belief. Heaps scathing contempt upon all empty profession. It administers a stinging rebuke of the reader's worldliness. Its stress upon the gospel's ethical imperative makes the epistle as relevant today as when it was first written. It focuses on the life that is produced from sound doctrine, from believing the truth. You could say the summary verse of the book of James is James 1 verse 22 anybody know what that verse is yes be doers but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves James is focused on practical Christian living and usually I start the class by talking about who the who the author is today we're not going to do that we're going to start with I want to show you how practical this book is so if you've been avoiding the book of James I'm going to give you a whole bunch of reasons why you shouldn't so go to James chapter 1. We'll just start off in the book today. James chapter 1, and I just wanted to show you how practical this This book is so practical that it has been referred to as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Like Proverbs is wisdom, but it's all focused on practical living. That's the book of James. So let's look at some practical wisdom. James chapter 1. James chapter 1, he teaches on how to face trials. Would you read verses 2? Two through four. Uh, My brother encountered all joy in his cause today, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are those are to produce endurance. He teaches on how to obtain wisdom, very practical. Carl, would you read verse five? Chapter one, verse five. If any of you likes wisdom, let him ask God to give generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. If you want wisdom, what's the practical means of obtaining wisdom? Go to God and ask him for it. Don't go to the world. He teaches how to view wealth. Chapter 1, verse 9, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. The Christian pursuing wealth and riches is a pointless thing for you to do. It's a pointless endeavor. The right view of riches is realize that they're passing away, they're fleeting, they're only temporal, and they'll give you nothing in eternity. So why would you spend your life pursuing them? He helps you see the difference between the trial and a temptation percy would you read verse 12 through 14 blessed is the man who perseveres under trial for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the lord has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. God brings trials, and he brings trials so that you will endure, so that you will build endurance. But temptations don't come from God. Where do temptations come from? Our own lusts. Our own desires. We're tempted when we're drawn away by our own desires. He then goes on to explain temptation. We don't have time to look at it, but that's a great little passage. In chapter 2... He prohibits any form of partiality, judging people based on how they look and how they appear. Don't show partiality to the rich man. Let's do verses uh, 1 through 3. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, And you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there and sit down by my footstool. Don't pay special attention and don't show partiality to people. In verse 4 he says, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become become judges with evil motives? By separating out based on your judgments, your opinions, then he warns against a faith that produces no change in life. Uh, that's in chapter 2, 14 through 26. Let's just look at 18 through 20. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, But you are willing. but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Yeah, you say you believe, but your life hasn't changed. Your life produces no fruit. Well, guess what? That makes you no better than the demons. They believe every word of Scripture. And their lives produce no fruit, no change. He teaches on the requirement for teachers. That's in chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. We don't have time to look at all of that, but uh, the first verse there is well known. Let not many of you become teachers. He teaches on true wisdom. Can you read uh, 14 through 17? But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant, so lie lie against the truth. The wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. But where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Yeah, wisdom comes from above. Worldly wisdom, wisdom that produces jealousy, selfish ambition, is demonic. It comes from the world. In chapter 4, he gives a whole bunch of practical warnings chapter 4 verses 1 through 10 he gives warnings about your desires can you read uh, verses 1 and 2 what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? is not the source of pleasures that wage war in your members? you lust and do not have so you commit murder you are envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask why do you get angry? why do you get frustrated? Because of your desires, because you're not getting what you want, and because you are envious and cannot obtain, you fight and quarrel. And he warns against how he warns against your desires. He warns against a critical tongue in verses eleven and twelve. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges and judges the law. But if you judge the law you are not a doer of the law but a judge of it there's only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and to destroy but who are you who judge your neighbor uh, it always surprised me how sometimes there are people who spend so much time looking at what everyone else is doing like if if you actually saw your own sin for what it was you wouldn't have time to be looking at somebody else talking about somebody else he also warns against presumptuous planning verses 13 through 17 for the sake of time we'll just keep moving here he warns against oppressing the poor in chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 and then he he encourages those who are being oppressed in verses 7 through 11 and this is a this will come back later his his view of justice and how you treat other people he then in verse 12 warns against making oaths would you read verse 12? Yes. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But your yes is to yes and your, and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Whenever someone comes and says, Look, I'm going to do X, I promise, I swear, I, I prompt, it's like, doth protest too much? <laughs> you have to say all that extra stuff because you don't think your yes is enough. Just let it be yes. Let it be no. He teaches on the the power of prayer, 13 through 18. The fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man will avail much. He teaches on helping those who have backslidden. Would you read verses 19 and 20? My brothers, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins turning someone back this is a practical book like every part of your Christian life is covered in some way in this book if you want to know how to live go to the book of James he teaches you how to live the book was actually written to help readers test their faith to prove that their faith was actually valid that they had a genuine saving faith. John MacArthur gives this purpose statement. James wrote his epistle to challenge his readers to examine their faith to see if it was genuine saving faith. How many times in Scripture do we find warnings? Do not be deceived. Many will come to me on that day. And James writes a letter and he gives you practical wisdom so you can know if you're a believer you can test your life to see if it lines up with what scripture says about it his book is thoroughly practical but it's also authoritative he gives a lot of commands now greek is cool you know in english if you give a command go do this it's context that will tell you it's a command but in greek it's actually a form of the verb and so you can just Pull up your Bible software and look up how many commands there are in the book. And you know how many you find when you do that? In five little chapters, 54 commands. The author expects his readers to not only read the book, but then to turn around and obey. And to do what he is telling them to do. He has no problem with giving a whole bunch of commands. He views himself as being an authority. And he expects his readers to view him as an authority as well. The book is also full of what Simon Kistemaker calls Hebraic coloring. Hebraic coloring. I had to tell you it was Simon Kistemaker because I wouldn't come up with that phrase. That is, you can see the influence of Hebrew literature and Hebrew poetry in the text. Whoever wrote this was likely Jewish. And understood Jewish writings and Jewish literature. Let me give you an example. Go over to chapter 1. Look at verse 9. In the Old Testament, you'll see parallelism where they'll put two thoughts side by side. And that's what he does in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Chapter 1, verse 9. But the brother. Verse 10, and the. Chapter uh, verse 9 again. Of humble circumstances. Chapter 10 corresponds to rich man. Verse 9, it is to glory, verse 10, it is to glory in his high position, in his humiliation. You see how both verses kind of line up? If you were to write them out in a sentence form, one above the other, they would line up perfectly. They're in parallel. That's what you find often in Hebrew poetry. And yet this author puts it in his Greek text. Like Old Testament literature and poetry, the author also uses repetition to make his point. Can you guys think of any psalms where he repeats himself over and over and over and over? Your loving kindness is everlasting. Your loving kindness is everlasting. Your loving kindness is everlasting. Your loving And he repeats it over and by the end of it you're like, okay, I get it. His loving kindness is everlasting, yes. He stresses the point. Check out James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to, To sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You see how he repeats it over and over, and he's just stressing it. You don't have to wonder what the main point of this first part is, do you? By repeating, and it's the same Greek word, repeated over in different forms. By repeating it over and over again, he emphasizes his main point. He's talking about temptation. He's talking about lust. He's talking about sin. And that's what he wants you to focus on. This is the same thing you find in Hebrew poetry. All this would indicate that his readers were likely Jewish. Now, he doesn't identify his readers. We'll we'll look at what he says about them. But he doesn't give us a whole lot of information on who they are or where they live. We don't find anywhere in the book where he names anybody. You know, Paul, he's got this list of names at the end of the book of Romans. And a lot of his epistles ends with greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so. James doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at the beginning or the end. The only real name you find of New Testament people is his own. But he does mention a whole bunch of people from the Old Testament, which would make you think that his readers know the Old Testament pretty well. He mentions Abraham twice, chapter 2, 21 and 2 23. He mentions Isaac, chapter 2, verse 21. He mentions Rahab the harlot, 2 25. He mentions Job in 5.11, and he mentions Elijah in 5.17. He builds his arguments off the Old Testament and off Old Testament characters. And in fact, he points his readers back to the three main divisions of the Old Testament, law, writing, and the prophets. The writings are also called wisdom. Chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. He doesn't define what the law is, other than in the next verse, he quotes the Mosaic Law. And he points his readers back to the Mosaic Law. Chapter 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He used the Greek word kurios, which was the translation for the name of God, Yahweh who spoke in the name of Yahweh. In chapter 5, verse 11, we count those blessed who endured, who have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. And then he points them to the wisdom literature in Job. This audience were clearly Jews. They were Jews. Go back to James chapter 1. We can prove the audience was Jews. Would you read James one one? upon the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed around relations. To who? The 12, the twelve tribes. Twelve tribes is a term that's used figuratively to describe Israel. Just a way to refer to Jews. It's used in Exodus 24:4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain where with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a figurative expression. Even in the New Testament, the 12 tribes refers figuratively back to the Jews. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So when he says to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, he's not referring to all of the nation of Israel. He's referring to Jews who are outside of Jerusalem. They're living outside of the land. He actually used the term diaspora. The diaspora would refer to when uh, God kicked them all out of the land and they went out into the Gentile nations. These are Jews who have been removed from their homeland. And they're living among Gentiles. Jesus actually referred to this. John 7, verse 35, the Pharisee said this, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks, is he? These are Jews living in Gentile lands outside of the land of Israel. And it's obvious that they are believers, that they have been converted to the Christian faith. He's, ref- he's talking to them, but they are clearly Jews who have come to Christ. We know that. James 1.1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're writing to a bunch of unconverted Jews, that probably isn't the way you want to start your letter. Chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Do not hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are Jews who have been converted. They have come to saving faith in Christ. Even though they're living outside of the land of Israel. And in fact, throughout the book, he refers to them as brethren. He's a Christian speaking to them and he's calling them brethren. Chapter 1, verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Chapter 4, verse 11. Do not speak against one another, brethren. Chapter 5, verse 12. But above all, my brethren. And there are many, many others. I just didn't include them all. They are his brethren. They are Christians. So let's get to Percy's question. If they're Jews who have been dispersed out of Israel... And they're now believers why are they now dispersed into the Gentile nations we talked about the word diaspora in verse 1 those who have been dispersed if you take that word and turn it into a verb it's diaspero and the same idea of dispersion was used in Acts 8 by Luke Acts 8 verse 1 Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death that would be Stephen and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all diaspero, scattered, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Acts 7, Stephen is murdered. Acts 8, Paul is breathing threats, and he gets letters from the, the Jews in Jerusalem to go out and start persecuting the church. In Galatians says he ravaged the church. And this caused a whole bunch of Jews to flee Israel. They were basically running, for their lives. running for their lives. And in Acts 8, he says, they went out into all of the world spreading the gospel. <laughs> Poor Paul. He was an evangelist before he was even a believer. <laughs> Acts 11, verse 19. So then those who were diasparo, scattered... Because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. Proclaiming Christ. That's why they were scattered. And that's who James is writing to. Now, what caused him to write the letter? We don't know. He doesn't say. Where were they located? Was he writing to the people in Cyprus or the people in Antioch? He doesn't say. We don't know. We just know that these are converted Jews living in the Gentile lands, and he's writing to them about the basics of the Christian life. But this also helps us establish the date of the writing. Because we know relatively certainly when (laughs) Stephen was martyred. He was martyred around 44 AD. Which means if... The author is writing to people who are already dispersed. The earliest this book could have been written is 44 AD. And me personally, if you look at the ranges people give, they'll give anywhere from 44 to 62. I think 44 is too early. The dispersion started in 44. They needed time not only to leave, but then to get established. Word to get back to James where they are. James realized they need some help. So he writes them a letter. It takes a little work and a little time to get there so I think the earliest we could say would be 45 would be the earliest this book could be written. This is the earliest New Testament book. Second to it is Galatians depending on how you date it somewhere around 50 to 52. Okay so where's the terminus? Where do we end this dating? Well I think 49 is the latest it could have been written. What happened in 49 AD? It also happened in Acts 15. Jerusalem Council. What was the big issue at the Jerusalem Council? Right. Do Gentiles who have been converted, do they need to live like Jews? And the answer they said was absolutely not. Why is that the ending point? Because it's inconceivable that James would write to Jews who are converted to Christianity, living in Gentile lands, it is inconceivable that he would write this letter and not mention the Jerusalem Council that became the central issue for Gentiles in the world. You just can't imagine he would write this book if if that council had already occurred. James was at the council. He would have included it in his book, in his letter. So who wrote the book? See, this is the question everybody was waiting for. Like you, you were gonna get to it eventually, and now you expect me to go through all the liberal arguments. No, we're not doing that today. I'm sick of reading about liberals. Okay, look, James one one. James, a bond of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have any more questions? Yes. Is it, is it James the brother of Jesus? <laughs> Thank you. See, I, I plant these questions for this purpose. That's a perfect segue. That's a great question. That's actually the question we're going to have. See, that's why we're not going to talk about what the liberals say about it. Because there's controversy just in the fact that he said his name is James. There are four different James in the New Testament. And this author doesn't tell us which one he is. (laughs) He just kind of leaves it hanging. And he gives no way for you to identify from the book which one he is. So here's the question is it James the father of Judas that would be Judas the Apostle not Judas the traitor or is it the Apostle James the son of Zebedee brother of John or is the Apostle James the son of Alpheus aka James the less or is it James the Lord's brother well I think one of them we can exclude pretty quick James the father of Judas he can be excluded because I'm going to show you everything we know about James, the father of Judas. Go over to Luke um, Luke 6, verse 16. Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. That's the first reference to James, the father of Judas. The second reference is in Acts 1, verse 13. He gives a list of the apostles... When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Those are the only two references to James the father of Judas. That's all we know about him. There is no other reference to this individual. Now, why does that prove he's not the author of our book? Okay, that is true, he was not an apostle. Any other reasons? This author writes a letter with 54 commands. He's got some authority. The people who got this letter know who he is. All he has to say is, James. And they're like, oh, I know who you are. And then he feels comfortable giving them 54 commands. This guy is not known well enough to do that. If it was this guy, he would have had to say, I'm James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot. Just to make sure they know. So I don't think this guy could be our author. He's just not prominent enough. There's just not enough information about him. We can also exclude James, the son of Zebedee. Why can we exclude him? He was martyred. He was martyred in 44 AD, about the time the persecution began. He was one of the first victims of the persecution. He didn't have time to write the letter. So I think we can mark him off the list. That leaves us with only two, and both of them are possible. But this is where the controversy really starts, because people say, well, yeah, but you have two names up here, but it's the same person. The brother of the Lord is the son of Alphaeus. Got some people shaking their heads? No. First of all, let's distinguish these two. James, the Lord's brother, is mentioned specifically as being the Lord's brother. Matthew 13, verse 55. This is the crowd speaking, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? James, the Lord's brother, is the son of Mary and the son of the carpenter. Now, it's possible Alphaeus was a carpenter. But within that context, that's clearly a reference back to Joseph. <coughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, is mentioned, and he is specifically called an apostle. We just read out of uh, Acts 1, where he was mentioned as apostle. Mark 3, 16-18 He's mentioned again, and verse 17, And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, who were called the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. Not James, the Lord's brother. We just looked at Acts 1. In none of the list of the apostles do we have a mention of James, the Lord's brother. We have James, the son of Alphaeus, but not the Lord's brother. And Jesus's brothers, his half-brothers, are always depicted as being separate and distinct from the disciples and from the apostles. In Matthew 12, Jesus goes to the synagogue in verse 9, and he's talking to the Pharisees, he's got his disciples with him. he heals a man, he casts a demon out of another, the Pharisees commit the unpardonable sin, he explains about that. Verse 46, a new group of people arrive. Matthew 12 46 while he was still speaking to the crowds behold his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him where were they his brothers were outside his disciples were in the synagogue verse 47 someone said to him behold your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you and notice how Jesus responds. who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He points to his disciples. He said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. My disciples are here. My physical brothers, my biological brothers are outside. In fact, the brothers of the Lord are said to be unbelievers throughout the gospel accounts. John 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Turn over to Galatians. In Galatians 1, it seems like Paul calls him an apostle Galatians 1 verse 19 but I did not see any other of the Apostles except James the Lord's brother so he is an Apostle well no actually <laughs> that's not what that means first of all the grammar of Galatians 1 19 would indicate that Paul is separating James from the Apostles so essentially what he's saying is look I didn't see the Apostles but I did see James the Lord's brother that's what the grammar would indicate. Secondly, just because he applies the word apostle to him, does not mean he's using it in a technical sense. And in fact, the word apostle is applied to other people. Was Barnabas an apostle? He was not. But yet, Acts fourteen fourteen. but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, he's called an apostle. But in that context, it's just referring to someone who is sent. In Acts 13, Barnabas and Paul were sent by the church on the first missionary journey. So this reference to the Lord's brother as an apostle does not mean he was officially an apostle, and it cannot be used in argument to say that these two guys are the same person. I did not see the apostles, but I saw James, the Lord's brother. There is no evidence that the Lord's brother was ever an apostle, that anyone ever viewed him as an apostle. In all of the lists of the apostles, he's not mentioned a single time. Whereas James, the son of Alphaeus, is named in every single one of the lists. And by the way, speaking of the son of Alphaeus, do you want to know what we know about him? All we know about James, the son of Alphaeus, was that he's named among the apostles, and that's it. That's the only place his name is mentioned in the entire New Testament. That's all we know about him. Which means these two cannot be the same person. And this is also a reason we ought to reject James, the son of Alphaeus. Nobody knows who he is. If he were to have written this letter, they would have said, who is this guy? He would have had to have written James one verse one. He would have had to written James, the apostle. So someone would recognize him as being an authority. So I think we can exclude James, the son of Alphaeus. And we're left with James, the Lord's brother. Edmund Hebert, James, the son of Alphaeus, is known to us only from the mention of his name in the list of the Twelve. A man who made so little impression on the gospel narrative as not to have his name associated with a single gospel event does not seem to be the forceful personality behind the epistle. He just doesn't have the authority, he doesn't have the gravitas to write a letter like this. John MacArthur of the various men in the New Testament named James. Only two were prominent enough to have penned such an authoritative letter. James, the son of Zebedee and and brother of John, and James, the Lord's half-brother. And James, the son of Zebedee, was martyred. And he was martyred way too early for him to have penned this letter. So we have to conclude that the author of this letter is James, the Lord's brother. So what do we know about James, the brother of the Lord? Well, apparently he was the oldest child well, after Jesus. But of his brothers, he was the oldest. We know that because every time he's listed, he's always listed first among the brothers of Jesus. And we saw that in Matthew 13, 55. Uh, You can also see that in Mark six, verse three, for the sake of time, I'm not going there. But if if you wanna look at it, he's always mentioned first, which probably means he was the first born after Jesus. And despite growing up in a home with Jesus, He didn't actually start believing in Jesus until after the resurrection. How do we know that? 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us when he was converted. And if you know 1 Corinthians 15, you already know what it's going to say. Uh, Verse 7. Well, let's start in verse 6. After he, Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, and he appeared to... James, then to all of the apostles. It was the resurrection and seeing the resurrected Christ that brought James to saving faith. We have no mention of him believing in Christ at any time. In Acts chapter 1, James appears again. Acts 1, verse 14. These all, with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. His brothers, including James, are now praying with the apostles. They're there in the upper room after the Lord ascended. And he obviously gained some prominence. His his position in the church grew. In Acts chapter 12, Peter was imprisoned. And when he gets out of prison, Peter leaves. Acts 12, verse 17, but motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Peter was the head of that church at the time. Peter leaves, and he says, Now give this report to James. James takes over as the head of the Jerusalem church. We don't know where Peter went. Rome would tell you he went, the Catholic Church would tell you he went to Rome and founded the Catholic Church at this point. No evidence for that anywhere. We know he he came back wherever he went. Acts chapter 15, he shows up again at the Jerusalem Council. And there, James is clearly the head of the council. Acts 15, verse 13. After they stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. There's that authoritative voice again. Verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. It is my judgment. I decree. He's standing on his authority as the head of that church. And in fact, in Galatians 2, he's so prominent that Paul says that he met with the pillars of the church, and he names James among them. Galatians 2, verse 9, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles, and they too, uh, and they to the circumcised. James was very prominent. Paul went to him to get the right hand of fellowship, and it was James, the brother of the Lord, who received Paul's gift from the Gentile church. When did Paul bring the, gen- the gift from the Gentiles? Anybody remember? I'm sorry his third missionary journey. Remember, he was in Corinth and he wanted to go to Spain, but he had to make a pit stop in Jerusalem to deliver the the offering for the Jerusalem church. Acts 21, verse 17, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James and and all the elders were present. James was the first among equals. The elders of the Jerusalem church we were all equal in their authority, but James was the most prominent one. It would be like saying if a whole bunch of churches had an offering for Grace Bible Church, they would say something like this, we met with Michael and all the elders of the church. Michael's the most prominent of the elders of Grace Bible Church. James was the most prominent of the elders of the Jerusalem Church. Why was he so prominent? Likely as a result of his tremendous piety. When you read through his book, you realize that this is a man who's firmly committed to being obedient. He's firmly committed to living a life pleasing to God no matter what. His exhortations throughout the epistles, his commanding tone, lead you to the conclusion that his words are backed by his own actions. I do have a question. Yeah. Um, so, 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 because he was an apostle, he, he still had authority to write scripture, mm-hmm. right? Uh, It was recognized by the Apostles, Right. How how does that work? So, there were others who were uh, given the authority to read Scripture? Mark was not an Apostle. (coughs) Luke either, right? Luke was an Apostle, but they were closely connected to the Apostles. When you find people like, you know, 2nd and 3rd century, no. No, that doesn't work. It has to be an Apostle or someone very close. And we know that James was very close, obviously. Um, he was close to Jesus, he was close to all the apostles. We know that Mark was very close, he was a friend of Peter. Luke was very close, a friend of Paul. Jude was another brother, yeah. Yeah, And he actually says that at the beginning of his letter. right? So, in James we have a man who is very devout, and his piety was known by the people in history. Eusebius, who was the early church historian from, well, I think, about the 3rd, 4th century, quotes some information from what the early church knew about James. And I I think this will be helpful to you. I want you to see his piety and what the early church knew about this man's devotion. He was holy from his mother's womb, and he drank no wine nor strong drink, nor did he eat flesh. No razor came upon his head. He did not anoint himself with oil, and he did not use the bath. The last part, you don't don't need to follow that example. Okay? He was essentially living as a Nazarite, completely set apart, separated from the world, refusing to do anything that would defile him or make him unable to approach God, totally committed. And that commitment showed up in his prayer life. You know, they say what you are in prayer is what you really are. What you are on your knees is what you truly are. What was James on his knees? And he was in the habit of entering alone into the temple, and was frequently found upon his knees, begging forgiveness for the people, so that his knees became hard like those of a camel, in consequence of his constantly bending them in his worship of God and asking forgiveness for the people. Uh, Leonard Ravenhill said he had hooves on his knees. Yeah, big hoes. His knees were calloused over because, well, he didn't have carpeting to kneel on. He was kneeling on stone. And he spent so much time on his knees praying. He was also known as James the Just. If you read through history, you'll see James the Just. Eusebius again, James, the brother of the Lord, succeeded to the government of the church in conjunction with the apostles. He has been called the Just by all from the time of our Savior to the present day. For there were many that bore the name of James. So we distinguish him by calling him just. And why did they call him just? Well, because he was just. In in James 5, he he goes after the people who oppressed the needy. Eusebius again, because of his exceeding great justice, he was called the just and Oblius, which signifies in Greek, bulwark of the people and justice in accordance with what the prophets declare concerning him this is a man who was totally committed to christ he was not divided between the world and christ he wasn't double-minded and i think he's a great example of what you and i should be totally committed to christ i read this quote last night and i decided to throw it into my presentation this is john flavel and he kind of gives the idea christ set himself apart for you believers no Not for angels, but for you. Will you also set yourselves apart for Christ? Be His and no others? Let not Christ and the world share and divide your heart in two halves between them. Let not the world step in and say, Half mine. You will never do Christ right, nor answer this grace so you can say as it is, Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And on earth there is none that I desire in comparison of Thee. None but Christ, none but Christ is a proper motto for a Christian. And I think when you look at the life of James, that's exactly what you see in him. James was faithful. He was faithful to the end. Tradition says he died in 62 AD. There are some fanciful accounts of his death. I'll let you go look those up. They're in Eusebius if you'd like to read them. Josephus provides a more historical account. Josephus was the Jewish historian. Here's what he says. Festus was now dead, and Albinus was uh, but upon the road. So he assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James, and some others, or some of his companions. And we have formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law. He delivered them to be stoned. And so James the Just, the brother of the Lord, meets his end by stoning. Faithful to the end. I read another little quote last night, speaking of James. James spent his life being faithful in those little things. In those daily little acts of devotion. I'm not going to drink wine today. I'm going to be pleasing to the Lord. John Flavel said, Those who will not martyr their sins will never be martyrs for Christ. It's a life lived of daily dying to self, dying to those simple little desires that produces the willingness to die as a martyr for Christ. That's what we see in James. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the example that we have in men like James who were faithful to the end. They were faithful in the little things. They were completely devoted to Christ. And Father, we ask that you would help each of us to live in the same way, uh, to give no home to sin and our hearts, and our lives, that we devote ourselves completely and totally to Christ, that we would be all in for Christ, that we would find our satisfaction in Him and in Him alone, that we would behold His glory through eyes of faith, and in seeing His glory that, we would, uh, that the world would grow dim and would no longer be tempting or pleasing to us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.